to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. He is addressing his own generation, or God is addressing his generation through Isaiah. And you find that much, especially at the beginning of the prophecy in the first five chapters, refers quite specifically to Isaiah's own day and generation and to the people around him. In that sense, he is a preacher to his own times and speaks for God to his own generation. But there is another level at which Isaiah speaks, and that is warning the people of the results of their folly and disobedience in ignoring the voice of God, not just through Isaiah, but through many of the prophets and servants whom God has sent, and through circumstances that have arisen in their day. They have ignored God, and Isaiah is sent to tell them there is a penalty for ignoring God, and that penalty is to experience his judgment. And therefore Isaiah speaks in the middle distance, as it were, of what is going to happen to the people of God. He tells them of the dangers that they are in, of the prospect of being sent into captivity uh, because they have trusted in the arm of the flesh, in human wisdom and human resources, rather than in the Lord. And ultimately, when they are led into captivity, from chapter 40 onwards, Isaiah prophesies in the more strict sense that he sees into the future uh, of the recovery of God's people out of captivity. They're being led back from Babylon into uh, the land of God's promise and into the salvation God had prepared for them. And then there's a third level at which Isaiah speaks. He speaks not only of their delivery out of the exile of Babylon, but of the ultimate deliverer, who is, of course, the Messiah. And so much of Isaiah you just cannot begin to explain except in terms of the promised deliverer who was to come in the fullness of time, who is identified, of course, in the New Testament as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So there are these three levels at which Isaiah speaks, and many of the prophets, if not all of them, do precisely that. They speak to their own times, they speak of events yet future, and they speak of events that are ultimately only fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Isaiah is certainly in that category in a special sense. So often in the New Testament, from the lips of our Lord himself, you get quotations from Isaiah, and very specially from these chapters about the servant of Jehovah, whom Jesus himself identifies, and whom the apostles identify. When Philip, for example, is with the Ethiopian treasurer uh, on the way down from Jerusalem, and he says to him, of whom does the prophet speak? And Philip began at that scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Now, this is what we have been finding, that all through the prophecy of Isaiah, 
you get these three levels of Isaiah's ministry. And here this evening, as we come to chapter 32, we are coming to one of the places where through the passage, through this chapter, you clearly get a picture of the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, the coming Messiah. Uh, we didn't plan to stop our study of Isaiah last winter at chapter 31 and begin now at chapter 32, but in fact it is a very suitable place for us uh, to begin. We've noticed that there are uh, there is one major division in Isaiah, chapters 1 to 39, concentrate upon one period of Judah's history. Isaiah ministers, you'll remember, to the tribe of Judah in the south, and uh, this section from chapter 1 to chapter 39 deals with Judah's history before they go into captivity. Chapter 40 to the end deals with Judah released from captivity and God's purpose in bringing them salvation. We dealt uh, with a lot of these things at the beginning of our study, of course. But there are other divisions in Isaiah, and I've noted some of these down in a rough kind of way. You must not take these as if there was any risk of you taking these as uh, gospel or infallible or whatever, but they're rough guides just, you know what I mean, and uh, you, you may find them of help in finding your way through Isaiah, which is a long book and uh, not uh, easy for us sometimes to divide up very clearly. But I've suggested to you in, in uh, these notes at the end of paragraph 1 that the great theme of chapter 1 to chapter 39 is the wisdom of trusting the Lord and the folly of trusting anyone or anything else as our ultimate Savior and source of strength and hope. Well now, you will perhaps remember that these divisions that we have noted have brought us at this point to chapters 28 to 35 which are, generally speaking, God's woes or warnings to those who trust false gods. And throughout the whole of the section 28 to 35, you find interlaced prophecies, whereas it seems Isaiah has suddenly caught the vision of God's ultimate purpose of redemption, and this begins to fill his thinking. And this is one of these cases where here in chapter 32 at the beginning, Isaiah's vision is of the distant future of the coming of Messiah as the king who will reign in righteousness. But then in verse 9, he is suddenly made aware again of Jerusalem and speaks directly to the present situation. And then from verse 15, he again is seeing into the far distance in the coming of the Spirit of God poured out in power from on high. Now, you will see, therefore, that 
this chapter really divides into these three parts. Verses 1 to 8 are of the longer-term vision that Isaiah has looking to see the coming of the Messiah. Verses 9 to 14, he is looking to the present, to the need of the city of Jerusalem, living in complacency. And from verse 15 to the end, he again is lifting his eyes to the far distance, to the day of the coming of the Spirit poured out from on high, which of course is fulfilled at Pentecost. Now, um, here at the very beginning of chapter 32, you get this uh, lifting up of the prophet's eyes, and he lifts up our eyes too, to the day when the king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. And it's an important thing for us to grasp the principle of this. What Isaiah is telling us in these first uh, seven or eight verses is that the salvation that is coming in the day of the Messiah will have certain marks about it. It will be marked by the coming of the one who is the king, the ultimate king. Now, you will remember that uh, Isaiah's call begins by pointing out the death of a king in the year that King Isaiah died. He says, I saw the Lord. That was the end of the reign of one of Judah's great kings. King Isaiah was made strong by the Lord, although he had a tragic ending, as we saw Uh, when we were studying that chapter. But uh, then there came King Ahaz, who was a weak king. And as the people looked to him for leadership, what they found was that he was interested not in leading the people to trust the Lord, but in feverishly searching for some human alliance with another power which would enable Judah to remain secure. So he put all his hope for the security, for the salvation of Judah in alliances with such nations as Assyria. And ultimately, when we come to the end of this section of Isaiah in 36 to 39, we discover that this whole concept of trusting in other rulers and other powers and human uh, security led Judah into disaster. And here, you see, the perfect king appears, the one in whom we may trust with utter confidence. Behold, he says, a king will reign in righteousness. Now, righteousness is precisely what Ahaz and even Hezekiah, who succeeded him, did not have. And you'll notice the mark of this opening uh, verse of the king is that he will reign in righteousness. But this righteous king is going to bring to God's people a salvation which has certain clear marks about it. Let me just tell you what they are, and then we will look at them a little bit more closely. He is going to bring a salvation which is in its nature moral, social, personal, spiritual, 
and intellectual or mental. Moral, social, personal, spiritual, and intellectual. Let me just look at these with you uh, first of all. The salvation which is going to come in Christ the Messiah is a salvation which will first be moral. He says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and the rulers, that is, the servants of this king, will dispense justice. Now, if you know Isaiah at all, you will know that righteousness and justice are the two marks of the reign of God amongst his people. It is the absence of righteousness and justice which God bemoans. In Isaiah 5, for example, in that allegory of the vineyard where he says, I have planted my vineyard, what more could I have done to it? I dug it round about, I planted it, I made it in every way the perfect vineyard that I could make it, and then I looked for fruit in my vineyard. What is the fruit that God looks for? He says, I looked for righteousness. I looked for justice. And these are the very things that he did not find amongst his people. And you discover again and again in Isaiah, these are the qualities for which God looks. Look back at chapter 1, verse 27, for example, and you will see that the marks of redemption are, the, are these. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. Now, again and again, these are the marks of the messianic reign. They are the evidences that God has brought salvation, the primary evidences. Now, what are righteousness and justice? Well, the distinction between them is this in Scripture. Righteousness is a respect for and observance of the law of God. And justice is a respect for and concern about the rights of others. And this is the significance of the distinction between these two terms. And when God is displaced from society, both of these things go. You will notice one is a vertical relationship, the other is a horizontal relationship. Respect for God's law and God's commandments disappears in the godless society. And respect for the rights of others disappears as well. Righteousness and justice go. And here in the coming of the Messiah, says Isaiah, the king will reign in righteousness and his servants will dispense just decrees. So the salvation is primarily moral, and we need to recognize that it is primarily a moral revolution that the Messiah comes to create. It is not simply to dispel unhappiness and create happiness. That's hedonism. But the Messiah comes 
to make men and women into the kind of men and women who will respect and observe God's law and love one another. Now, that's exactly the commandments Jesus gave. It is loving God and our neighbor as ourselves. Righteousness is loving God. Justice is loving our neighbor as ourselves. And these are the two things the Messiah comes to bring. His revolution, his salvation, is a moral revolution and a moral salvation. It is secondly, uh, uh, it is a moral revolution and then a social revolution in our relationships with each other. It is thirdly, a personal revolution and a personal salvation. Do you notice in verse 2, Isaiah says, each man, I was retranslating that a man because it should, I think, be a man. There is no reason for translating it each man, and I think that the older versions are right when they translate, a man will be like a shelter from the wind. And many scholars believe that it is, of course, a reference to the Messiah, who is a king, but he is not only God's king, he is the God-man. And the picture of what he will do for those who trust him is described in terms of the four perils of being exposed in the open wilderness, do you notice? These are the perils of wind, rain, thirst, and sun. And they're all described in verse 2. And the man, that is the man Christ Jesus, will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the parched desert, and the shadow provided by a great rock in a thirsty, that is, sun-stricken land. The whole point of the great rock, of course, is that in a land where the sun beats out of a cloudless sky, the one thing you long for is shade, a shadow to be under for protection from the burning rays of the sun. He will be like that. He will be like streams of water in the desert. He will be like a refuge from the storm. He will be like a hiding place, as one of the translations says, from the wind. And these personal areas of bringing salvation, the servant of Jehovah will be to his people. So a man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, streams of water in the desert, and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. You can see how all of that applies in so many ways and is literally applied in the New Testament to Jesus. But you notice, fourthly, this salvation will not only be moral in that it is uh, a transformation of our obedience to, of our disobedience into obedience to God. It will be social 
in terms of our respect for the rights of others. It will be personal in that we ourselves will experience in the Messiah the shelter, the refuge, the uh, streams of water, the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. And then it will be spiritual because verse 3 says, The eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. Now, we need to see verse 3 as the reversal of the judgment that was predicted in chapter 6. Do you remember how immediately after uh, the occasion when Isaiah responds to God's call in chapter 6 and says, Here am I, send me. In verse 9 and 10, God goes on to describe how his ministry will first be a ministry of judgment upon the people. Now, we usually stop reading Isaiah 6 at verse uh, 8, where Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. But then in verse 9, God goes on and says, go and tell this people. Now, here is the point. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. It is, perceiving. It is the problem of deafness and blindness. Make the heart of this people calloused says God to Isaiah, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And God begins to tell him about the judgment that is to come upon the city. But this blindness and deafness is a judgment. It is the great mark of the domination of sin upon a people. You remember how Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. Now, it is a spiritual blindness. We need to grasp this. It is a spiritual deafness of which God is speaking here to us. And when the Messiah comes... Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. In other words, judgment will be lifted. And in the coming of the Messiah, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Now that's exactly what happened in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the significance of it, as John's gospel tells us again and again in the signs that John speaks of, the significance of it is not just physical sight or physical hearing. It is that spiritual opening of eyes so that people will begin to see what they were hitherto blind to. Now that was the problem of Judah, you see. They were living in the country of the blind. They were staggering around in their own spiritual blindness and going nearer and nearer the precipice of destruction until God confirmed them in their blindness and deafness. Now that actually happens, you know. It's not ancient history, this. When people persistently go on refusing to listen to God, 
The time comes when they can't hear. When people hold their eyes so that they will not see what God is setting before them, the time comes when they cannot see. Do you know how you get that tendency sometime in children? Isn't it an intriguing thing? A child hears from somebody something it does not want to hear. And the child does this, you know. Don't want to listen. Don't want to hear. Now, it's so easy for us to do precisely that with God, you know. Spiritually, we do that. Don't want to hear Him. And there are some things that we cover our ears and cover our eyes about. And the danger of it is just this that we end up not being able to hear, not being able to see. It's spiritual, this, and it's a great mark of God's salvation, the coming of the Messiah, that the blind see and the deaf hear. Just turn, well, t- turn back to 29.18, I think. Yes, 29.18, which again is a reference to the coming day of the Messiah. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Turn forward to chapter 35, verse 5. You know that famous chapter in Isaiah, the desert and the wilderness uh, and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the... I can never think of the crocus. The rose is what I was brought up to read. Um, It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. But notice verse 5, will you? Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a heart, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and so on. This is the coming of the Messiah, you see, and it's marked by this. Now, my dear friends, you will know. You will know the signs of that. There are people I've known who have recently come to faith in Christ who have said to me, you know, I see things now that I didn't see before. They see new glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. They say, I read my Bible and I find God is speaking to me here. I'm really hearing God speaking to me. That's the eyes of the blind being opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And it is the spiritual blessing of the Messiah's coming. And the Messiah's reign does this. It is moral, it is social, it is personal, it is spiritual. Do you notice it is also intellectual? In verses 5, 4, in verse 4, the mind of the rash will know and understand and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. Now, that is not simply a tongue with impediment. 
That is the tongue that could not speak clearly and fluently of Christ, of the living God in all his beauty, of salvation in all its reality. But he says, the mind of the rash will know and understand. It's difficult to tell what the rash is or who the rash is. Um, It can be all sorts of things, really, and possibly means the mind of the uninstructed. In other forms, it may be the mind of the person who never thinks before he acts. You know that sort of person? We would literally call him rash. But this kind of person who has not been used to thinking will know and understand. I think basically it is the revelation of the truth of God begins to dawn upon someone. Now, although I say that that salvation is intellectual, I do not mean for a moment that those who uh, have uh, not as great intellectual equipment as others will suddenly become academic giants. That's not what it means. That's not really important. What it does mean is this. It means that the living God is the God who makes wise the simple. I've told you before, I'm sure, about the young lad who was converted in Springburn when I was uh, just a young Christian and who was brought to Christ scarcely able to speak the King's English as it was then. And he was almost totally inarticulate. He was a laborer in a foundry and a boy who had never had any schooling, didn't trouble to go to school. And you know, when he began to come to the prayer meeting, which was the sign in these days when I was uh, just a student that true grace had worked in this boy's life, and he came to the prayer meeting, and I'll never forget the first night that he found his voice in prayer, and not one of us could understand him. He couldn't put two sentences together. He couldn't speak proper English at all. And uh, I suppose in some ways, if I were being quite honest, it was just slightly embarrassing. And I'm ashamed to acknowledge that this evening. But I lived long enough in that young lad's presence to discover that he not only grew in grace and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, but he grew in wisdom. And I will never forget the night that he began to pray in the prayer meeting. And I suppose that I've never known such a hush on a prayer meeting as he began to pray, O thou that makest wise the simple. And there were students, I tell you, Ph.D. students, who came to that boy ultimately for godly counsel. Now that's what Isaiah is speaking about. The mind of the rash will know and understand. The stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. Now from verses 5 to 8, he is speaking to us about another kind of transformation, and it's the restoration of true values in the lives of God's people. Notice how Isaiah describes it. And this is something that happens when true salvation comes to God's people. There is a restoration of true values. 
Now that's something of great importance. Wasn't it Alexander Solzhenitsyn who said when he came over from the east to the west that he saw the western world like a shop window where all the price tags had been reversed and the cheap things were highly valued and the things that were really expensive were cheapened. Now, that's exactly what has happened in our society. Notice, Isaiah speaks right into the 20th century, my Christian friends. No longer will the fool be called noble. No longer will people put great value on the man God calls a fool, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. For the fool speaks folly, his mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness and spreads error. I told you what the suggestion is sometimes made about that verse. Verse 7, the scoundrel's methods are wicked. He makes up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. But the noble man makes noble plans and by needs he stands. In other words, true nobility is going to be truly valued. And all the cheap, tawdry nonsense that people really set a high price tag on in the modern world is going to be seen for what it truly is. See the point? Now, finally, in verses 9 to 14, well, uh, that's really sub-finally. Um, 9 to 14 are an appeal to the complacent. Isaiah turns his attention again to the current times, to contemporary Jerusalem. And uh, you'll notice what verses 9 to 14 are. They're an appeal to those who are at ease in Zion or complacent, who feels secure. Notice how often that occurs. Verse 9, you women who are so complacent, you daughters who feel secure. Verse 10, you who feel secure will tremble. Verse 11, tremble, you complacent women. I think it's a, a very interesting thing in these verses 9 to 14. This is all I really want to say about them, that it's to the women of Jerusalem society that Isaiah makes his appeal. They have become careless. That's what it is. You know, we sometimes quote the authorized version form of this, those who are at ease in Zion. And there is a sense in which complacency is a danger for all God's people in every generation. But what this really means is they've grown careless. They've grown careless about God. They've grown careless about spiritual things. They've grown careless about true values. They have cheapened things. And Isaiah is given a word from God especially for the women of Jerusalem. I think the reason for that is that when that happens to the women of a society... When they grow careless, careless about moral standards, careless about the things of God, careless about truth, I tell you, so often historically, 
It has been the women in society who have been the anchor to retain society with a measure of stability. And when the women become careless, I think that's a sign in Isaiah's thinking of ultimate decay. And he says, the fortress, verse 14, will be abandoned. The noisy city deserted. It's the picture of Jerusalem laid waste. And there's no need to say more about that. It's true, isn't it, that so often the influence of womanhood in society is crucial for its survival. So Isaiah appeals then from verse 15 to the end. He is describing the age of the Spirit. Notice verse 15, till the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the desert becomes a fertile field. This, of course, is Pentecostal blessing that he is speaking about. Now, all the prophets, all the major prophets deal with this. Isaiah deals with it. He says, it's when the Spirit is poured out upon us. What will come when the Spirit is poured out? Look at verse 16. Justice will dwell in the desert, and righteousness live in the fertile field. How is that moral transformation then to be accomplished? Well, it is when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within God's people, and He will transform them from within. That's what's going to make the difference. Now, that's why both Jeremiah in chapter 31, 33, and Ezekiel in chapter 36, 26, and 27 sounds the same note. I will pour out my Spirit, he says. I will put my Spirit within them. I will write my law on their hearts. And that is the day of the Spirit in which we live today. And God's salvation by the power of His Holy Spirit produces that fruit, notice verse 17, the fruit of righteousness is what the Holy Spirit will produce. And that fruit will make even the worst desert blossom and become a fertile field. That can be true for an individual. It can also be true for a whole society. And that's what we need to cry to God for. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We bless you for all its relevance to our modern world. We thank you for its relevance to us personally, and we pray that we may be hearers and doers of the word. In your mercy, speak to us and bless us and take us as we commit 
one another in the love of Christ to you this evening. For the glory of his name. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.